This presentation is from Managing Design 2016, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Okay, so uh, our last speaker for the afternoon is Anthony Quinn. Uh, he is with Westpac. I was going to sort of say your title, but I'm going to let you do that because it changes and I c can't keep up. So, um, Anthony gave a really wonderful talk at UX Australia just to talk him up and put pressure on him, um, which was uh, one of the ones that sort of really resonated with me personally. I know I wasn't the only one in the audience. Um, we've got him back, not to do the same thing, but to talk about um, a related topic that's close to his heart. Please join me in welcoming Anthony. Thanks. I, I, actually, before I begin, can I just say what a fantastic day. Like, have a look at your week. Um, and that was just, uh, just mind-blowingly good, that last presentation. Um, and I have to admit that just the breadth and the depth of the thinking and, and just the vibe, um, you know, it's just awesome. And I, I almost feel like I'm, I'm a rank amateur, you know, by comparison. And, and um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that as well, which is a little, little bit of a... So I'll tell you a story that something happened to me on my way here, and I know that sounds like a setup for a gag, but actually it's true. So I was chatting somebody, and, and it sort of triggered this little bit of anxiety in me, but it's, it's kind of funny too. So I was chatting somebody, and I said, I'm on my way to this conversation, uh, this conference today, and I'm presenting. And they said, oh, that's awesome. I'm a big fan of your presentations. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, um, and they said, you know, I just, I just love them. You know, they're brilliant. And I was like, yeah, of course they are. And then they said, yeah, because, you know, you're so vulnerable. And then I was like... <laughs> <laughs> And then they said, because you make so many mistakes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, thanks very much. And then they said, yeah, and you've, but the one thing I've got to say, if you quitting, is it always comes out in your presentations, you've completely mastered the Puma methodology. And I thought, what the hell is Puma? So they, they said, yeah, the Puma, P-O-O-M-A. Now, it, it is actually a methodology, but I, I kind of don't quite have time. I know we're getting near the end of the day, but if you want to pick it up in question time, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions about it. Um, so what I really wanted to talk today about was actually, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story about a situation experience that I had and maybe share some of the things that I learned along the way, some of the insights and, and maybe some of the principles and some tools and, and techniques that I took out of it that you know, hopefully I can share with you today and, and they'll be useful. So I don't know if anybody's, or anybody's read this book by this guy called Dan Pig. And he, he, what he talks about is what, what motivates us and the, the, the factors that motivate us in life. And he talks about um, extrinsic rewards. So things like money, basically, is an extrinsic reward. And there's a point or a threshold for all of us that we reach where these extrinsic rewards don't really motivate us any further. So you know, in other words, there's a point where the amount of money you make actually doesn't really matter very much to you anymore. And over and above that, you can make more money, but it isn't actually what keeps you coming to work day after day. And so the things that actually do over and above and, and cause people to go a little bit extra are, are sort of three things. One of them is mastery, which is basically having the opportunity to, to be continually better and be continually improving as a person. So day by day, you're actually getting better. And the other one is, um, the other one is purpose. So actually having a reason and a strong why, and a strong sense of why to actually do what it is that you do. So meaning, basically, in your work. And the last one is autonomy. So having control over how you do your work and how you do things. And so I guess the thing is, as, as leaders and managers, 
we all want strong people in our teams. We want strong people who bring you know, their energy and their passion and their commitment um, to, to bear, it, because design is actually quite a challenging thing. We're often doing things that actually nobody really knows how to do anyway. And so we need them to bring those things, you know, their, their energy and their resourcefulness to quite challenging situations. But I guess the thing about it is, as a leader and as a manager, there's, there's risk, there's management risk that's inherent, sorry to use that word, there's management risk that's inherent in giving people autonomy. So, you know, they can stuff up, right? And, and the thing about it is, is that that's actually not that difficult when it's, you know, if you like, if it's, if it's around functional performance. So, you know, usually, I think as Amir said, you kind of know after a while the questions to ask, the just enough questions to ask about where you're at, how things are going, what's happening, and so you can kind of quickly diagnose course correct, do a little bit of coaching, and everybody's fine again. And the good thing about that is that if you do it quickly and decisively and fairly, then your stock goes up and the brand of design goes up in, in your organization, the wider world, because you're basically demonstrating that you take accountability and ownership of situations and you jump in, you do something about them. So in other words, leadership. But what do you do? when you're in a situation where you've got somebody who is strong and talented and driven and committed, and they've got great design skills, and they're absolutely knocking it out of the ballpark in terms of their delivery. They're just smashing their targets, and people generally seem happy. But you sort of have this hunch that something isn't quite right. You know, you're sort of picking up these little whispers when you arrive into meetings and people are saying something, but then they shut down. And you can never quite figure it out, but you know something is kind of rotten in the state of Denmark, right? Something is just not quite right. What do you do? Well, if you're like me, what you do about it is nothing, and then you procrastinate, and you sweat, and you worry about it, and you think about it. And so the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you think about this person you know, that you've got who's strong, and you know that something is going on around them, and you've given them heaps of autonomy, but something's just not quite right. You know, and you think about them before, you know, you, you kind of get to that stage where you wake up in the morning and they're the first person in your mind. And that's kind of weird when you're married. <laughs> and you're not married to them, just to, to, just to explain. And so that was the situation that I found myself in, was that I had, um, I'd, you know, a couple of years ago, I had sort of inherited this person. And I was in this situation. And, you know, you kind of get up and you think, okay, I'll just clear my head, have my breakfast. And, and so they're still there, you know, in the cereal, which is kind of weird. Um, and you go to work, and you have your coffee, and you chat to your, your peers, and you get on about your day's business, and then you go for lunch with some of your peers or your colleagues, and you start, you know, the conversation inevitably turns to this person. And then you realize that you're actually totally and utterly consumed by them, and they're, they're absorbing all your mental energy. And it's incredibly unproductive, because you're actually not thinking about all the other things that you're supposed to be doing, and all the other people that you're supposed to be looking after. But, you know, I also thought, when I found myself in this situation, I thought, this is probably just me. Why should I really be worried about this? And, you know, I did notice that, say, some of this person's peers would get a little bit put out. And I thought, well, it's just jealousy, right? Strong person, a little bit dominant, maybe. Not afraid to promote themselves. Probably just a little bit jealous, right? We could all learn from that. Self-promotion is a good thing. And, you know gets the brand of design out there, and so this is really good, right? And maybe we just needed this person to shake us up. And maybe that's all this is, so you know, why worry about it? But I guess the thing about it was, was that it just continued. Um, and you know, from the outside, it looked like their team was also really happy too. So that was, you know, or so we were told. But the thing about this was it just kept bubbling along, and you know, gradually, um, it's a bit like you know, this syndrome of the Wizard of Oz, where 
the interesting thing about the team thing for me was that, um, I don't know if this resonates, but you know when you're not necessarily that experienced and so the, you know, the first leader you have you think is the best person in the world, especially if they're strong, because you haven't got anything to benchmark them off of, right? And so the, the team that this person was actually looking after was maybe a little bit inexperienced. It was a bit like the wonderful Wizard of Oz where you know, this person's amazing, but then if you peek behind you don't really know. So this, this just kept happening and eventually it started to, I started to notice that the whispers were beginning to get more prevalent and so I started to pick them up not just from you know, their peers but sometimes slightly from the team that they were looking after and sometimes from their stakeholders. And so eventually I decided, you know, okay, grudgingly I have to do something about this so I'm going to have to step up or at least step in. So I stepped in, I started just showing up at meetings just to see what was going on. And I started doing things that I suppose you could describe as you know, reasonably tactical things. So I started actually noticing that, yes, they were quite domineering, but that was just them, their personality. And so I would use you know, techniques like you know, facilitation techniques, like, okay, thanks. Now I'd like to hear from you about this. And that was kind of good for a while, but the problem with that is it's not scalable. You have to be everywhere and be omnipresent and haven't really worked out how to do that yet, unfortunately. <laughs> and then the other thing you know, that I was doing and trying out was this technique, which is, you know, the, have you guys heard of the feedback sandwich? I think there's another name for it, actually. Um, and if you're the kind of person who likes to use visuals in your slides and you're Googling it late at night, you, there's a whole other world out there, let me tell you. <laughs> so I'm using this technique where you basically start with the positive and you, and you tell somebody about something they're doing that's really good and then you insert, you know, you insert, insert slice of critical feedback here. And then you close it a positive and you say, but look, you know, the thing is, you're doing great work, so you just keep doing it, and it's, everything's going to be awesome. And this doesn't work for two reasons in two situations, and, and the research actually proves, and I was actually devastated when I discovered this hadn't worked, because it was one of those sort of tenets that I'd been holding near and dear to my heart for years, because, again, one of the first people who happened to manage me said, this is how you manage people. Um, and the reason it doesn't work is that for people who, in their development, are still um, competent, sorry, consciously not competent, so basically they're learning, and they know that they're learning, they want to learn. Um, you've actually got to give them technical coaching, so try this, this way, see how it goes, we'll review that and adjust. And that actually works best in that context. For somebody who already believes that they've mastered something, this doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is, is because of confirmation bias, which basically means that we hear what we want to hear and we filter out all the rest. And if you look at the way that the basic structure of it works, most of it's actually positive anyway. So you just filter out all the stuff that you don't quite disagree with, and you walk out of a meeting and you think, nailing it. And that guy thinks I'm awesome. Um, and so I wake up, and here we go again. And, um, and, the, and the cycle continues. And, and then I actually, this started to really kind of get on me, and, and it, it sort of kind of got a bit personal. And I thought, you know, this person... I'm, I'm actually I'm at the stage now where I've realized that what's going on here, they're playing me, and that actually kind of really got, you know, kind of got the Irishman in me up, right? So I thought, and, and the thing about it is I thought, they've taken something, they've taken my power. Now, okay, I'd kind of given them a bit because maybe I wasn't on it quickly enough, but they were actually disempowering me. And I was noticing it in things like our one-on-ones would become very, um, what I would describe as very controlling. So... Gradually, what was actually happening was that the, the, the flow of information out of this person was shutting down. So I didn't get to see any of the work. I didn't get to see any of the design work, and therefore I couldn't really get across it and understand what was going on. And the access to the people 
was also beginning to get shut down and, and was being very carefully stage managed, I was beginning to notice. And in our one-on-ones, they were becoming very sort of transactional and they were almost like negotiations. It was actually quite exhausting. It was like being in a constant arm wrestle with somebody. So, you know, if I do those things, then you will do these things for me, right? Um, so, you know, your box ticking and so on. And so I got good and fired up about this and I, you know, puffed myself up and I thought, I'm going to sort this out. And you've probably realized that, and I sort of hadn't quite got it at the time, but I'm describing this very much as a conflict between two people. Because that's actually what was happening in my head. Right? As in, this was a real person, by the way. But that's what was actually happening in my head. Was I was basically in a fight, quote-unquote. Not a real one, but it felt like that's what I was. And the thing about that was that um, I guess that it, it, it's kind of limiting. Now, I didn't actually realize bizarrely that I wasn't in that situation until I was sort of trying to figure out what I would do about this and I was at home and I was flipping through this book which is actually a really good book by the way it's, it's, um, it's called The Personal MBA by a guy called Josh Kaufman and it basically describes what a business is, what a business does how it works, how it interacts with its environment and then how you kind of manage yourself and the people within it and the cool thing about it is it's about 25 bucks and you can actually tell people you've got an MBA <laughs> And if they say, where'd you get it from? You can say, the living room, because that's where I keep it. Um, so there's like this tiny bite-sized section, because that's how the book is actually written. And he talks about this thing called fundamental attribution error, which basically means that we have a tendency to, um, to attribute, uh, I guess, you know, to attribute things. We, we make judgments that are based on, we attribute what we see happening to personalities. So an example of that would be, let, let's just say I'm talking now, and somebody comes running in, and they come up to the front, they drop their bag, and they sit down. And I just look at them, and I think, wow, you're late, you're disorganized, and you're rude. So I've just made three value judgments just like that. But what I don't know is that that person actually is late because they had to stop on the way to give somebody CPR and save their lives and make sure they got safely onto an ambulance. So there's situational factors that I either just ignored or didn't know about, and I just made a snap decision based on their personality. And so that's what I was doing here. And the converse of this is also true. So we explain things away. So when I'm late, it's the traffic, you know, it's the person who just wouldn't get out of my way in the coffee queue, all those kinds of things. It's always the other, right? And that's what was going on here, was that I was attributing this, um, this situation to this. For me, it was about personalities. And so having had that insight, I could recognize that my blind spot was that I wasn't actually looking at the situational factors. And basically, I was, I was doing this. So you know, every time I'd sort of get together with this person, I'd say, right, well, my reserves of blame. And there was probably a little bit of that coming back the other way as well. And once I had that insight, I realized that what was going on here was the conflict wasn't actually really about two people. The conflict was actually about autonomy and compliance. So having the freedom to decide how you want to do your work the way that you want to, to, to do your own work, but also the compliance with the values and, and the, I guess, the, the norms of the team, the broader team in the organization. And that the balance was basically out of, out of whack. Right? So, the, so the world is pretty much out of balance here. That's really what's going on. And once I had that sort of insight, I realized that you know, the, the problem here was actually the, the guiding framework. Now, the guiding framework, just to, to sort of explain why I'm showing you a picture of a fridge, um, is that the best way to describe this, the concept of the guiding framework, 
because it's basically the structure of the world, is there are sort of environmental factors that can drive or limit your behavior. Now, I'm not saying it's like outside of your control to change your behavior. But an example would be that if I tell you, when I go home this evening at 7, when I get off the train and I go home, I'm going to make sure I have a healthy snack, get the kids to bed, and then I'm going to cook a really nice dinner from scratch, and it's going to be awesomely healthy and very, very good for me. But if I go home and open the fridge, and all that's in the fridge is a tub of marriage and a beer, I'm going to drink the beer, and I might snack on the marriage while I dial in a takeaway. <laughs> so there's only going to be one outcome. And then you keep looking at that as a system, and you say, well, so why is the fridge empty? You've got to keep going back to first print. So why is the fridge empty? Well, the fridge is empty because when I was doing my groceries, I was just buying stuff. I was just chucking it in the cart, and I wasn't really thinking about what am I going to do this week? How am I going to plan it out? How am I going to lay it out? What do I really want to achieve? All those kinds of things. I'm just buying stuff. So I buy ice cream, margarine, and beer. And I'd already eaten the ice cream when I took this picture. And so then I started to think about, OK, so I've got to do something here about this. You know, this, this is bigger than just the two of us. But you know, what, I can only play with things that are within my um, sphere of control and influence. So Stephen Covey, the guy that wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, Sorry, I was just a bit distracted there by a terrible joke that I was, I was talking to Jerry early on and about the habit thing, and, and I said, was this bad nuns? Um, so the, 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 the control and influence thing is actually, um, you know, there are factors that I can actually act on and, and do something about, and there are other things that actually I have no influence over whatsoever. My, my, my realm of influence just doesn't go that far. My scope of my influence just doesn't go that far. So really... I might be concerned about them, but I'm going to have to accept that that's all I can be and just move on and do something about the things that I can do. And so I looked at the person that I had the most control and the most influence over in this situation, and that was myself. And what I realized was that because I was very stressed about this whole thing and because there were other factors, like I started to look at the amount of time I actually was putting into resolving it, which was very little because I was very busy doing other things, that I was, I was basically just getting narrow in my thinking. And so the first thing that I did was, and, and that meant that I wasn't, you know, when you're narrowing your thinking, you don't really have the capacity for doing critical thinking, so looking at what's really going on, and then creative thinking, so you can actually start figuring out how might I solve these problems. And so the first thing that I did was actually I started to manage myself. And, and, and I started to manage, um, you know, I started to do things like put systems into place so that I actually... Um, would be able to open up my thinking. And so, you know, do things like practice mindfulness, meditate. Um, and actually, one of the things that I did, which is kind of like a tactic, was I put a 20-minute kind of worry window into my diary every day, which was when I could sit down and journal and vent about this situation. So write everything that was happening down a piece of paper and then mail it off to the CEO. Um, <laughs> and maybe I didn't do all of the things I just told you. But you, you, get, the, you get the idea. Um, and the other thing that I started to do was I thought, well, maybe there's something here about fit. And, and so I started to think about this, this phrase that I'd been using as I was walking around the building and explaining it to, to, to my peers, was that I've inherited this person, you know, kind of like the way I've inherited this hairline um, from my mum. So I, I realized that, you know, that being the situation, I, I almost had to take a step back. And I said, well, what would I do if the situation existed and I was actually hiring someone, what would I look for in that person? And, and then how would I maybe use that insight to then look at what, was, what I felt was not happening here so that I could actually have a conversation about that? 
And I started to think about, you know, so what's the context that they're operating in? What are the outcomes that I expect them to deliver? And what are the challenges that, that are in the way of those outcomes? And then how would I actually, let's just say I was meeting them and interviewing them for the first time, which was something that I actually kind of hadn't really done. I'd obviously met them and talked to them and how are things, got to know you. What would I actually be looking for? How would I assess whether they were the right person for the fit, you know, for the situation that we were in? And how would I continue to assess that? And I use this tool called the Recruitment Canvas, which is actually very useful for doing that because what it basically does is it, it, it helps you. I mean, these were things that I would naturally, con not naturally, these were things that I'd learned to do sort of almost intuitively over time as a hiring manager. But the problem with doing it that way is that you don't always, you, again, it's not a system, right? You're relying on, I think I'll do this, da da da, da and then halfway through it, you realize that you've forgotten to do step two. And so using a tool actually helps you have a process. And the other thing, because it's a canvas, means that you can involve other people and you can engage them into it, potentially even the person you're hiring. And you can suddenly go, hmm, you notice anything here? And then the weirdest thing happened. They just basically got up and left. No warning, just left. And it wasn't like I was, you know, it wasn't like I was sort of managing that as an outcome. It was, it, it, it just, they just left, just got another role, decided I like that better, see you around. And that was awesome because it completely solved my problem. <laughs> Happy days. And that is leadership in a nutshell. <laughs> and the next morning, I had the best sleep I ever had. And I woke up, and the first thing I thought was, oh, I don't have to send any letters to the CEO today. I'll use that half hour to just sleep in. And then I woke up about half an hour earlier, and I realized that actually the problem had gotten much, much worse. Because, um, and I'm really trying not to use this phrase, but I had now inherited their team. And the weird thing about that was that I didn't really know the team because of the way that they had been so controlling of my access to them, right? And the thing that really compounded the issue was that um, because, as I mentioned earlier, you know the whole Wizard of Oz thing, right? And the inexperience and the what you see is what you think and so on. They sort of formed a really strong bond with this person, right? And y y you, know when, uh, you know when you've been kidnapped? Well, actually, uh, sorry, I can't speak from direct experience, but people who get kidnapped can, um, <laughs> can form you know, a bond with their captor because they sort of see them as a, as a protector and a nurturer. And, you know, um, Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> uh, I've never been to Stockholm, but apparently once you go there, you never want to leave. <laughs> must be something to do with herring or something, I don't know. But, um, so, and, and that was actually kind of going on here. As I started to talk to these people and actually sort of reach out to them, which was the first thing I did, naturally, I started to realize that they were actually, um, like, it was actually a little bit uncomfortable at first, I have to say, because it felt like they were checking me out just as much as I was checking them out. And it was kind of weird. But I sort of recognized it and thought, okay, well, I've got to be careful about how I deal with this because I'm, I'm clearly going to have to, you know, clearly they've lost something that they really value, and they've lost that protector, and so I've now got to, to be it, and I've got to make it safe for them to actually tell me what's been going on. Um, and so the other thing that I realized was that, you know, when I talked about the, the, the guiding structure earlier, one of the things that I recognized was that part of what was driving this problem was not just the person and their behavior, but actually, um, and, and, and the controlling and so on, but actually the, the environment that they were in. So they were in a, in a project, so they were removed, at removed from the core team. So they're in a project in a different building. 
and, and there were some really simple little things like that, you know, in, in our, you know, being a bank, we're kind of slightly obsessed with security, so you can't just walk into the place. You've got to have swipe cards. But the swipe cards that they had for this building didn't work for that building, which was kind of weird because mine do, and I just hadn't picked up on this. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So that was one thing. And, and I guess what was really going on was that, you know, without realizing it, they sort of, the, the culture in that um, program was a little bit different to the culture in the core team. I mean, certainly organizationally reasonably aligned, but just different enough. And they'd sort of absorbed that culture as well. And so it, it kind of then became a process of gradually reaching out and understanding them and getting to know them as people and what their interests were, where they wanted their careers to go and things like that. So if you like the soft things. But also going back the other way and, 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 and doing things like just physically going over there and spending time with them because they felt like they were also at remove and a little bit isolated and a bit scared of being absorbed back into this big thing that they didn't know anything about. So actually just showing up and physically being a presence and spending time there. But also managing my time there so that I didn't end up becoming immersed in it, if that makes any sense. And doing the same thing back in other ways. So you know, w one of the things that, that, um, that we actually did was set up sessions where they could actually come and, and show the broader team their work. And we could sort of link that to the work that the rest of the team was doing, because ultimately what we want to do is, is deliver you know, a, a sort of you know, continuous and a contiguous end-to-end -end experience. And I really was very conscious of demonstrating to them how their work was important and also how it contributed into this bigger thing. But it also enabled us to then influence the work that they were doing too back the other way. You know, and this is not to be Machiavellian about it. It was just that that was what we recognized. So it really became about setting up the touch points that actually made very clear what the expectations were around values and the behaviors that we would expect to see that go with those. So by demonstrating and then by modeling them and then over time getting everybody immersed in them so that they kind of get reflected back regardless of where everybody is. And I guess that over time, what started to happen was that you know, the balance kind of got a little bit restored. So what was really interesting about this was that at first, that team was actually terrified that they would lose you know, their, their autonomy. But in actual fact, when we worked through this process, they ended up with having more autonomy because they now didn't have this sort of controlling leadership style, micromanaging them. And they're actually pretty good self-organized team, so they were able to actually run with things, but also um, do it in a more meaningful way because they could also see how it connected back into the, you know, the bigger world and the bigger picture and the thing that we're actually trying to drive out, which is the purpose. And I guess that one of the, for me, one of the major personal insights that I took from this is that it's, it's often the people who are the most different to us. You know, we're naturally, we naturally gravitate towards people who are like us, but it's often the people who are the most different to us that actually provide us with the greatest learning certainly the greatest opportunities to learn as long as you can remain open to that and have that kind of growth mindset. And so the principles that I, I took away from this was that you know, it's absolutely vital to hire. When you hire, you have to hire for cultural fit, which means you actually have to know what the cultural fit is that you're looking for and figure out ways of actually measuring it and checking in on it. And even when you um, inherit, is that word again, people, you've got to treat them like a new hire. So you, I don't mean that you completely put them outside of your organization, but it's that you take them on a journey that's almost like a hiring journey where you're both having that kind of conversation. And you're, and you're doing it in a structured and a methodical way 
to actually get things out. Personally, very important to practice you know, self-awareness and, and be aware of your own um, responses to situations and your own triggers. And the best way to do that is to actually not wait till you're in the heat of the moment because it's actually very difficult to pull back and suddenly do that, but to actually, on a daily basis, just try to put in little systems so that when you are in the heat of the moment, the discipline's already there and you get the benefit from it and you don't have to necessarily have another thing to think about. And I guess one of the big things for me is that, you know, I, I don't believe that you can control people. You can definitely influence them, but you can't control them. If you want to influence people, the best way to do that is through culture. And the best way to do that is through how you set up your, your total environment. And I guess that what I would say is that, you know, um, and it's, it's been a theme right throughout the day, is that sure, you will have lots of touch points. And by touch points, I mean things like meetings and conversations and the social stuff, you know, like breakfasts and things like that. And maybe you don't necessarily need to do it for every single one of those things but you've always got to be mindful of the culture that you want to, to have. And then you've got to very consciously make sure that the behaviors that reflect that culture occur at those touch points and that they're immersive so people are actually in them so that they absorb the behavior and they absorb the values and they start reflecting it back in their own behavior. So I guess that you know, everybody in this room, basically what we do as design leaders is we help people to unlock their potential, to use design, as in the potential that they're unlocking is the potential to use design to make the world a better place. So, you know, more equitable, more sustainable, and basically just a growing world. And that's what we do. But the thing is, you can only do it with, I suppose, the things that are within your control and your influence. But that might actually be way more than you ever imagined that it was. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Anthony. We have time for some questions for Anthony. Does anyone... What would you have done if the guy hadn't left? Sorry, I've used guy. If that person hadn't left? Um, actually, pretty much the same thing. So I, I think that... The, so the only thing, or the only action that was slightly different was because they left, we didn't actually have the conversation about, you know, the conversation, I guess, that we really needed to have because I wasn't equipped to do it until I actually had that step back and that insight. Um, so what I would have done is had that conversation and then set some very explicit um, expectations, very clear expectations about doing things like showing up to certain... Um, ceremonies or rituals and meetings and so on, and what the expectations would be about bringing work um, and people. So it would have been things like that. And, and then I think I probably would have then kept measuring and monitoring and holding that person to account. And myself too, because you know, a big part of the story here is that I wasn't actually acting on this quickly enough. So clarity, sorry, Anthony. What, right. What's actually the what were the positions? Like, were you peers or were you oversight or what was? Um, so this person reported to me. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily in their mind, but and by their actions, but but they did. You know, I'll joke. So they, they did in, in a hierarchical sense. Yes, they reported to me. I think one of the, if I can actually add something to both of these things, because 
I've been thinking about this since then, and the great thing about putting these presentations together is you, one of the things that I've, I've observed now is that when senior leadership comes in, you know the way they do that thing where they're just getting to know people, and we're not going to make any changes around here? I think what they're actually doing is, is that reverse interview process would be my sense of it. So um, it, is, it is kind of interesting. So be prepared. Anyone else? You, uh, you talked a bit before about that process of like having 20 minutes of vent time and writing it on a piece of paper. I call those blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately for the people around me. Yeah. Uh, please join me in thanking Anthony. That was great. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Managing Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.